welcome back to Search, Ponder, and Pray. Um, this is a podcast where we kind of loosely follow the Come Follow Me structure given by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, and we try and find ways to um, to apply the, the things we learn in the scriptures to ourselves in our daily lives. Um, I finally got the uh, the email set up. So if you're if you want to send me some questions or would just like to comment on a few things or just want to say hi or just chat, feel free to shoot me an email and I will try and get to that as quickly as possible. Um, you'll be able to find that down in the episode description um, just and just down there. Um, but so I hope you all had a wonderful, uh, wonderful weekend. Uh, felt the spirit on Sunday and had a chance to fast and pray and Gain some answers on some things. Um, I hope it was. I hope it was a spiritually uh, rebuilding and be- beautiful time for for you. But before we get too too heavy into it, let's start off the way we normally do here um, by saying a prayer. So um, I'll do that now. Our dear Father in heaven. We are so very grateful for the opportunities that lie before us this day. We thank Thee for the power of the Scriptures, and we thank Thee for Thy loving care and concern in our lives. We ask Thee, dear Father, as we study these, please help answers to the questions that we have, solutions to the problems in our lives, to come to our minds and our hearts. Help us to see the correct path forward. Help us to know how we might be of better use to Thee and to those around us. Give us the strength and the guidance we need for today and help us to live up to what Thou hast given unto us. We plead for forgiveness of our sins, Father, and we say these things ever so humbly in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. So, um... Today we are, uh, so this, this week we are studying in Hosea and Joel. So this is kind of where it gets a little bit confusing in the Bible sometimes when you have, these are the, these are the small prophets, they're called, because their books are, are a little bit smaller than some of the other books. And they were put all kind of grouped in the end, even though that's not where they go. The, I hope you, you remember it, you, you know that the, the Bible is not ordered chronologically, um, the story of Daniel comes much later than the story of Hosea. In fact, if you jump to the Old Testament student manual, there's a part where it talks about that it probably happened either contemporarily or before Isaiah. So this is this is a long time. We're going way back in time now. And that's just kind of how they decided to structure the, the, the Old Testament when they were compiling it all together. So, the, so Hosea... Uh, comes much much earlier. So if it's if you're trying to figure out, well, why is God talking about the things He's talking about, and why are they being warned of certain things? I thought we'd already had this happen. You're right. We're we're jumping back in time. So Hosea. If you know the story a little bit, a little bit of the story of Hosea, um, it might be unsettling to you. Um, and I think it's it's unsettling for a lot of people. A lot of people try and wrap their heads around how this story all happened and why it happened and if it really even happened. Um, so let's jump in with chapter one. 
Uh, today we're going to try and get through chapters one through three. We'll see what happens. Um, if you look on the Come Follow Me, I believe it asks us to study uh, one through six and then ten through fourteen and then the whole book of Joel. Um, so um, we will study, we'll, we'll, for today we'll try and get through one through three. I've kind of tried to chop those up to see if we can kind of get the whole suggested reading in. But um, we'll kind of see where the Spirit leads us. We'll see where we're led this week. Um, I look forward to the spiritual feasting that we will most assuredly have. So let's jump in. Chapter one. Chapter one. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. The beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea, and the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take unto thee a wife of whoredoms, the children and children of whoredoms, for the land hath committed great whoredom departing from the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, which conceived and bear him a son. Hit the brakes right there. That's 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 the that's where the problem comes. If you don't know the story of Hosea, that's where the problem uh, start started to happen with the book as to whether or not it really happened. All of those things. So let's jump over to the commentary, and the first thing that pops up after the little introduction in the Old Testament student manual is. Um, it, it basically covers the whole book, the whole book of Hosea, this little, this little subject, this little section, section 10-2, the manner of prophesying among the Jews. Nephi said that to, to understand the writings of Isaiah, one has to understand the Jewish way of prophesying. The same is true with Hosea because he, like Isaiah, made extensive use of metaphors and symbolism. Each chapter contains at least one metaphor and all need to be seen against the background of Israel's history and tradition to be understood. So, um... It kind of goes on to talk about the the symbolism of using the marriage covenant in his teachings and how that was what it what God was trying to convey to the people of Israel at that time of their idolatry and what what the, their covenants were supposed to mean to them and what they did mean to God. Um, so we jump down to ten three. Um, who was Hosea? So the superscription of the book informs us that Hosea was the son of Beeri. Unfortunately, we know nothing about his father. The Hebrew name of the prophet, Hosea, signifies help, deliverance, and salvation, and is derived from the same root as the names of Joshua and Jesus. By reason of numerous illustrations in the prophecy to the northern kingdom, it is commonly supposed by, by commentators that Hosea was a native of that commonwealth. Which, as it says, the superscription further informs us that Hosea was a prophet in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam and Joash, king of Israel. Jeroboam II, the king of Israel, reigned from 788 B.C. until 747 B.C., and Hezekiah, the last name, last named of the kings of Judah, began his reign in 725 B.C., we're not, we may not be far off from the truth if we date Hosea's ministry, therefore, from about 755 B.C. to 725 B.C. He was then a contemporary of three other great prophets, Isaiah, Amos, and Micah. So, um, we, have, we have that. He's probably, they believe he's probably from the northern kingdoms. That's not, that's not super important necessarily. It helps us gain some understanding in the background. And, it, it, you know, it can be good to know. Um, but I don't, I don't know that it's 
too important. It, it may be more important. I, I'm, I'm afraid I'm a little understudied. It might be somewhat similar to the, to the story of Samuel the Lamanite, where for the, for the Jews and the king, in the kingdom of Judah to have someone come from the northern kingdom who was ca- carried captive and taken away, you know, to all of a sudden be showing up, they're considered the lesser. You know, they, they feel like, well, you guys went astray. We're better than you guys. You know, now you're coming to us, teaching us that, like, we're supposed to, we're supposed to believe you as to that we're the ones that are wicked. It was probably a very big slap, slap in the face. And then to compound it with the idea that this prophet, if if he did, we'll jump over to this real quick because I feel like this is um, very important. In Hosea two one dash in it's section ten dash five, how are, how are we to understand God's commandment to marry? Um, a harlot. Uh, would would God literally command one of his servants to take an, Im- an immoral woman for his wife? Or is this command to be interpreted only in a symbolic sense? The interpretations fall into five categories. So there's five different categories. Um, one is that, yes, God did ask Hosea to marry a harlot. Just plain and simple, he did. And this the, the, the commentary basically says... A lot of people don't feel like that would be the case because it would be difficult for him to come to the people of of Judah and say, you know, you need to repent of your idolatry and your adulterous ways when the people could say, well, you're married to a harlot. You picked her. You knew who she was. You know, how dare you talk to us about these types of things when you yourself, your, your own house isn't in order. Now, that could be the case, but I could also see that it, it, it could still be, it, this could still be the, the, a good option, is that God did very much say, yes, you will go marry this harlot, because it is my intent to bring her out of her, her adulterous ways, the same as I intend to bring Israel out of their adulterous ways, and to bring them back to me and to help them see the light. Now, do I think that this is something that we should all go do? We should all go, you know, throw ourselves in with the lowest of the low. And no, no, I don't. I don't think that this is something that is very um, sacred and important to Hosea. We don't know that that was the case. But all I'm saying is we can't throw it out the window just yet. There are some other options that I do feel like are probably more realistic. Um, And so... We'll, we'll jump onto those. Uh, option number two, um, the whole experience came to Hosea in a, in a dream or a vision. And there really wasn't the Gomer, and there really wasn't the marriage, and there really wasn't anything, any of the children or anything like that. <sighs> Again, this is one that's kind of mm, a little wishy-washy. It could, it could have been that that's how it happened, but it gives it a little less um, force as an idea, in my opinion. I I feel like yes the you know you could you could bring up this imaginary situation to the people of Judah and they would get the point but I feel like in the, for the most part almost all of the the prophets up until now through well even past now with um Ezekiel and all those different people they they did certain things they actually did certain things that were to show, were to really grapple that power that they needed and, and grapple the attention of, of the Jews and the, and the Israelites to show them, no, listen, pay attention. This is what we're trying to tell you. And so I don't imagine that God just gave him this idea and then said, go forth and, and preach it for a story. Um, 
Then there's the idea that Hosea married a woman who at the time was good and faithful, but later became a faithless wife and a harlot, and then left her husband to participate in fertility rites with the neighboring Canaanites. So that is the, um, that is the issue that, that God is starting to have with the children of Israel, and we'll kind of get into that a little bit more and see the problems arising from that, that um, the children of Israel are starting to give up on God and go and do things that they feel like are more prosperous and more, uh, more, more secularly beneficial to them in their uh, quest for uh, power and wealth. So that is another, another option. Um, Number four is a variation on the interpretation of number three, is that Gomer was not an actual harlot, but a worshiper of Baal, and therefore she was guilty of spiritual harlotry, that she never actually went to participate in the rites, but she did worship Baal, and she did those things, and so just in the same sense as the rest of Israel, she was also, um, she was also cast into the same category of the rest of Israel as being uh, spiritually adulterous, and therefore could be counted as a, as a spiritual harlot in the same sense. And so God's calling her out as such in the opening chapter. Number five. Uh, we're gonna, I'm just going to kind of read into this one a little bit more. It's the longest one, and it almost seems like this is the way the um, the church is leaning in some sense, at least the the Old Testament student manual, which was provided by the church. So is it truly the church's official stance? I would say most probably. Another approach that avoids some of these difficulties is that the words present, present an allegory designed to teach the spiritual consequences of Israel's unfaithfulness. Sperry felt that Hosea never did actually contract such a marriage. He explains the Lord's call to Hosea to take a harlotrous woman to wife represents the prophet's call to the ministry, a ministry to an apostate and covenant-breaking people. The children of this apparent union represent the coming of the judgments of the Lord upon Israel, warning of which was to be carried warning of which was to be carried to the people by the prophet the figure of the harlotrous wife and children would i believe be re- readily understood at the time by the hebrew people without reflecting on hosea's own wife or if he was unmarried on himself elder henry b iring of the quorum of the twelve apostles commented on this experience years before teaching hosea in his early morning seminary classes the book of Hosea, like the writings of Isaiah, used, uses what seems to be almost po- poetic images. The symbols of Hosea are a husband, his bride, her betrayal, and a test of marriage covenants almost beyond comprehension. Here are the fierce words of a husband spoken after his wife has betrayed him in adultery. He goes, through, he goes on through verse 13 to describe the punishment she deserves, and then comes a remarkable change in the verse that follows. At an early point in the story, in in just two chapters, even my youngest students knew that the husband was a metaphor for Jehovah, Jesus Christ, and they they knew that the wife represented his covenant people, Israel, who had gone after strange gods. They understood that the Lord was teaching them, through this metaphor, an important principle, even though those with whom he has covenanted may be horribly unfaithful to him, he would not divorce them if they would only turn back to him with full purpose of heart. I knew that too, but even more than that, I felt something. I had a new feeling about what it means to make a covenant with the Lord. 
all my life I had heard explanations of covenants as being like a contract, an agreement between one person where one person agrees to do something and the other agrees to do something else in return. For more, re- for more reasons than I can explain, during those days teaching Hosea, I felt something new, something more powerful. This, is, this was not a story about a business deal between partners, nor about business law. This was a love story. This was a story of marriage of a marriage covenant, bound by love, by steadfast love. When I what I felt then, and it is and it has increased over the years, was that the Lord, with whom I am blessed to have made covenants, loves me and you, with a steadfastness about which I continually marvel, and which I want with all my heart to emulate. So least what I am extrapolating out of this, what I'm what I'm getting out of that that section was Yes, maybe so, maybe not, probably not, that there was Gomer, that there was this idolatrous wife, but what matters is the story. How we view our covenants. That's what's important. And it has been my opinion for some time, and I and I, I think it's I think I think it's a at least in, in a correct direction, that as with the kingdoms, um, the three kingdoms of glory, there are three classes of, or multiple classes, of how we worship God. And I think the idea that um, God is almost like some sort of employ, employer, that we have come into a contract with him, and we have said, Okay, God, um, I am going to do X, Y, Z. I will fulfill my covenants from um, nine to five. I will work my my shift. I will do my duty, and then after that, I am done. I'm going home. I don't don't expect me to put in any more work. I'm not going to. I'm not part of the grind mentality, and I I expect these blessings in in return. Or maybe maybe we do feel like we're part of the grind mentality, and we're going to work our guts out because we want to get what we deserve from God. That is one way of looking at it. But I think we're missing the greater picture when we, when we look at it that way. God's not, God hasn't sat us down and said, you know, I want to go into a business deal with you. I feel like we, it would be contractually um, beneficial to both of us if we sat down and no. God wants us to bind ourselves to him, to bind us to him and to bind him to us through love. In the same way that two people who are in love want to be bound to each other for eternity in the temple of God. They think about each other, they talk about each other, they would do anything for each other. And they are true to each other. Not because they are contractually obligated, not because they feel like, oh, well, I have to do this because the law says this, or I have to do this. No, they do it because they want to. They want the happiness of the other person. That's the kind of relationship, that's the kind of covenant that God wants, that he sees. That's how he views it. And here in Hosea, He is bringing it up to his people and saying, 
what you are doing is damaging and hurtful to me. Because you are looking at our marriage as simply as, as a worldly marriage. It's just a piece of paper. It's just... It's just it's just uh, it's just meaningless words. It doesn't mean anything. It does mean something. It's very powerful. And it has the power that you put into it. And God is willing to put a great deal of power into our covenants. It's up to us to be reciprocal in that act. So let's jump back to the scriptures. And, the, and so he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, which conceived and bare him a son. And the Lord said unto him, Call his name Jezreel, for yet a little while, and I will avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu, and will cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And she conceived again and bare a daughter. And God said unto him, Call her name Loruhamah. For I, for I will no more have mercy upon the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. But I will have mercy upon the house of Judah, and will save them by the, Lord, by, by the Lord their God, and will not save them by the bow, nor by the sword, nor by battle, by, by horses, nor by horsemen. Now when she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she conceived and bare a son. Then said God, Call his name Lo-Am-Amai. For ye are not yet my people, and I will not be your God. For ye are not my people, and I will not be your God. So there seems to be a um, a gradual process happening here. And whether it's symbolic or not, um, God is leading his prophet down a path and showing them the path of the people slowly by degrees falling away from him. Um, so in section 10-6, symbolic names in the uh, Testament Institute Manual, it says biblical names are often were often taken from the circumstances surrounding the child's birth. In Hosea's narrative, Gomer bore her husband three children, two sons and a daughter. The names given to the children symbolize the destruction that lies in Israel's future as a result of her idolatrous and adulterous ways. That is, children, judgments, are the natural result of Israel's harlotry or unrighteousness. The name of the first child, Jezreel, is the same as the valley of, of former King Jehu's bloody purge and foreshadowed Israel's overthrow in the strategic valley. It is the, it is the valley overlooked by Megiddo. And Megiddo is, um, is the valley whereby we get the, the, the word Armageddon. Har Megiddo is the battle of Megiddo. It's the Armageddon is the battle of the valley of Megiddo. We'll talk about that later, probably closer to Christmas when we talk about Revelation, but the book of Revelation. But um, and it's framed for crucial battles, past and future. Jezreel means God shall sow, or scatter abroad. Since anciently, anciently sowing was done by casting handfuls of seed, it undoubtedly alludes to the overthrow and scattering of Israel. So right off the bat, the first child. So we, we get Hosea is married to, to Gomer. God says, I, I am married to an idolatrous people. Now, the Israelites were surrounded by the Canaanites at this time. And the Canaanites uh, worshipped um, 
a few different gods. One was Baal, one was Ash Ashtaroth. I'm not sure. I'll have to look that up. I'm sorry. Um, but these gods, um, Baal was a god of farming and rain and agriculture. And Ashtaroth or Ashtiri, I can't remember. Um, she was a god goddess of fertility. And I would not be surprised if for the Israelites back then, it was similar to what a lot of us feel today that, oh, if they're prosperous, if they're well-to-do, that must mean that they're righteous. That's not any more the case than to say that a poor person or someone who's having hard times must be wicked. Unfortunately, that's something that we as humans and as mortals, we have a hard time getting our brain to believe that it's not true. And so the Israelites started to participate in these. When it talks about the, the groves and the hills, the hills were often associated with either Baal or Molech, and the groves were often associated with um, Ashtaroth, where they, would, where they would commit orgies and they would do sacrifices to other gods. And they, there are these, these massive issues spiritually that would arise. And you know, God's saying, look, I brought you to this place. I brought you out of captivity. I bought you with a price, whether that price was bringing you out of, bringing you out of Egypt or whether that price is the future atonement that I will suffer on the cross and in, in, and in the, 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 the sacred, you know, no, good grief. No, I can't think of the word. Um, yeah, when I suffer the atonement in the olive grove, In Gethsemane. Either way, I have bought thee with a price. I paid the dowry. I have done everything that a husband is expected to do. I have given you a place to live. I have provided for you. I have protected you. We, like he says with, with uh, Lo, Lo Ruhama. When he says back in, uh, let's see, that's verse, verse seven. He tells Judah, "I will, I will save them by the Lord their God. I'm going to protect them, not them. And I'm not going to save them by bow, nor sword, nor battle, or by horse, nor by horsemen. I'm going to fight their battles. And that's where they got in trouble. That's why they had issues. If you remember back to, to Jeremiah, they couldn't, they couldn't just sit by." And say, no, we're giving ourselves to God and we're trusting that God will protect us. They couldn't do that. They had to get involved. They had to try and prove that they knew better. From the, from the proclamation to the world, we know that a father's duty and a husband's duty is to provide, preside, and protect. And God's saying, I have provided for you. I brought you to the promised land. I've tried to preside for you. And you sold me for a king. You said you didn't want me, that you wanted a king instead. And I'm trying to protect you, but you won't listen and do what I've asked you to do for your protection. I have fulfilled my end. I am trying. I am reaching out to you still. Please come back. You don't understand. 
The name lo ruhamah in Hebrew means not having obtained mercy and suggests that no amount of mercy from God would set aside divine justice and save northern Israel. The ten tribes would be taken back, would be taken into captivity and led away. God was reaching out. We're told by Alma and Amulek in the Book of Mormon that God did not come to save us in our sins. He cannot save us in our sins. We have to want to be saved. We have to want to come to Him. That famous painting of God reaching out to man, His fingers outstretched as far as He can reach. And yet it is the hand of man that is slack and waning and pulling away. God wants to pull us up, to bring us into unimaginable glory. But He can't force us. We have to choose it. We have to come to it ourselves. God is saying, I am trying. I'm doing everything that I can. I've sent you prophets and prophets and prophets and prophets. We've gone through Isaiah, we've gone through Jeremiah, we've gone through Ezekiel, we've gone th we haven't gone through Lehi yet, but he was there. We've got, now we're in Hosea, and then we're going to go on to, to Joel, and then we're going to go on to Habakkuk, Micah, all these different prophets that they strove with Israel. Please listen. I'm trying to give you every chance imaginable. Please listen. There is danger coming. But they had to choose. And eventually the third child, Lo Amai, in Hebrew, not my people, is like a lament and shows that by their harlotry, Israel could not be thought of as God's people. With the last two symbolic names, the Lord predicted the negative results of sin. But in the next verse, he held out a promise of hope. Throughout the book, Hosea interweaves the promise of destruction or a curse with the promise of, with the promise of future restoration and favor. God says, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered, and it shall come to pass that in the place where it is said unto them, Ye are not my people, there it shall be said unto them, Ye are the sons of the living God. There shall the children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together and appoint themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. God is... is reaching out and proclaiming to them, the promise is still there. You still have that option. Please come back. And if you will not come back, do not halt, do not hinder your children from coming back. They, If they seek for righteousness, let them go. Let them come unto me. God's promises are ever outstretched to us.
now. The way to the promised land might be full of fiery flying serpents. It might be full of drought and famine. It might be full of tests and trials. It most probably will be. It might be long. It might be our entire lives long. But if we truly want to come back to our God, if we truly seek repentance, if we truly seek forgiveness from our sins, it will be granted to us. Christ has paid the price. And to those who seek him, he will grant salvation. He will, he will sit them down and call them the sons of God and the daughters of God. But we have to strive for it. It is by the grace of God that we are saved after all that we can do. God cannot save us in our sins. Chapter 2 Say ye unto your brethren Amai, and to your sisters Ruma, Ru, Ruhama, Plead with your mother, plead, and, and plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, neither am I her husband. Let her therefore put away her whoredoms out of, the, out of her sight, and her adulteries from between her breasts, Let, lest I strip her naked, and set her as the day that she was born and make her as a, as a wilderness, and set her like a dry land, and slay her with thirst. And I will not have mercy upon her children, for they be the children of whoredoms. For their mother hath played the harlot, she hath, she has con hath conceived them, hath she that hath conceived them hath done shamefully. For, for she said, I will go after my lovers that give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, mine oil and my drink. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up the way with thorns, and make a wall, that she shall not find her paths. And she shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then shall she say, I will go and return to my first husband. Then, For then was it better than with me than now. For she said, For she did not know that I gave her corn and wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. Therefore I will return and take away my corn in the time thereof, and my wine in the season thereof, and will recover my wool and my flax given to cover her nakedness. The Lord is trying to make it abundantly clear. Your hearts and your minds are drawn out to these other gods and to these other practices. To liken it to us, this is probably going to touch home a little bit close for me and maybe for you as well, but that probably means it's something that we need to work on. The idea is you are so concerned about the food that's on your table. You're so concerned about the money that's in your pocket, about the house you live in and the clothes you have on, that you have run away from me in search of other things, other places that you might be able to obtain that, that need, that glory, these other gods. You focus so much on the things of the world 
whether that's your job, whether that's your standing in your community, whether that's your the way your kids are performing in school or in sports, whether that's how how well your family looks to the, to the world, how good, how pretty your yard is. None of those things are bad. But if they pull your attention from God and pull you away from the Lord, they are idols. And when you run after them, trying to seek happiness, trying to find that enjoyment, that pleasure. We become the same idolatrous people, the same adulterous people that Gomer represents in the story. And God tells us here, if you continue, I, I cannot continue to bless you with the Spirit. I cannot continue to give you your spiritual nourishment. And you will be slain with thirst. I will not have mercy upon you or the things that you do. You, they will not have my blessing because they are the children of whoredoms. They are works and items and desires born from idolatrous and adulterous means. God will not bless sin. He won't. He will hedge the path before us with thorns and make a wall and make it difficult for us in an attempt to get us to return. That is when we are on the precipice, oftentimes, I think. I feel like I've seen this in my personal life, and I've seen this in the scriptures many times, where you have someone who is pursuing a path of unrighteousness. They're going down, you know, once you start down the path to the dark side, you know, they're, they're going down that, that, uh, that path, that ever-present path in all stories, the path of darkness, the path of evil, slowly at first giving way to their carnal desires, slowly going further and further. And then God starts to make things hard to try and push them back, whether it's by sending the Lamanites to them to attack them and, and to try and bring them down and, and, and remind them of their God, or whether it's the Israelites and the Babylonians coming and trying to be, you know, attack them and the Assyrians coming and taking the northern kingdoms and scattering them and whatever it may be. Maybe it's, you know, work's getting difficult. Maybe it's, you know, who knows what it could be. Maybe it's there's a problem with family. Maybe there's there's you're sick and you can't get over it. Or maybe there's, it could be anything. Or it might be that you're not feeling the voice of the Lord. If we don't turn back to our God and repent of our ways and try and find what it is we're doing wrong to come back to God at this time, If we don't draw closer to the Lord, we miss out on the point of it all. And I've seen it happen, like I said, with friends and in the scriptures where they get to this point and they say, see, I knew there was no God. Or see, God doesn't love me. And they turn away from him and they miss the point of it entirely. And then once they jump off the precipice at that point, 
they become past feeling. They harden their hearts and they become bitter. And it will be very difficult for them to return. But they can do it. They can. God's hand is still stretched out. And that's my testimony to you, is that it doesn't matter how far we've gone. God is still ready to reach out to us. We must be ready and willing to do the work to return to the Lord. Because it will be work and it will be difficult. But salvation is difficult. We are saved by grace after all that we can do. And I testify of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.